Support for Connecticut Public Radio comes from AstraZeneca, a biopharmaceutical business that is pushing the boundaries of science to deliver new cancer medicines. More information at AstraZeneca-US.com. Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with Drs. Anish Chagpar, Stephen Gore, and Peter Schwartz. Yale Cancer Answers features the latest information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. This week, it's a conversation about machine learning and prostate cancer treatment with Dr. John Onofrey. Dr. Onofrey is an assistant professor of radiology and biomedical imaging and of urology at the Yale School of Medicine, where Dr. Chagpar is a professor of surgery and oncology. John, maybe we can start off by having you tell us a little bit about yourself and what exactly you do. So I have a background in computer science. Uh, So I actually spent four years working as a software engineer in the defense industry before coming back to get my PhD, which I actually did here at Yale. Um, In that time, I became interested in actually medical image processing, and part of that became a driving factor was the use of machine learning and artificial intelligence to create solutions for image analysis problems. And in particular, those were applied to radiology. Okay. All of that sounded really cool, but kind of losing me in terms of what exactly are you talking about? We know that people go and they get x-rays and CT scans and ultrasounds and those kinds of things as diagnostic tests. And some of us may have heard a little bit about artificial intelligence and machine learning, but it seems to be this amorphous concept like, you know, are machines actually going to learn how to do the job of humans? Are they going to take over what we do? Put that whole concept together for me um, and explain a little bit about what exactly is the marriage between those two things. So artificial intelligence and machine learning really is a very broad concept, and it especially takes a very broad range in terms of, like, medical diagnosis or any kind of medical decision-making. A lot of problems involve, though, what's something that the computer can help a clinician do? Is there a task that the computer can aid them in some way so that they can do their job, one, either better or two, more efficiently? And so, especially in particular in imaging, The most basic task is, well, can I identify some part of an image that is of interest? So, for example, in prostate cancer care, one of the preliminary steps in any analysis is just to identify the prostate gland itself. And it turns out a machine is able to do that if you have someone to teach it. And that data is very important. And that data comes from these radiologists that are available at our institution. So it's really what data goes in, the machine learns kind of what these radiologists can do, hopefully do it as well, and spit out an answer. And they try to do it in an automated fashion, and that way you can hopefully aid this clinician with their job. So so I get that. So you have an image, like a CT scan, and the prostate is a part that we can find on the CT scan. And so if the radiologists who are used to looking at CT scans can teach the computer what a prostate gland looks like, then the the computer can identify it. But then the question really is, the radiologist does more than looking at where the prostate gland is. They're the ones who say, is there something wrong with the prostate? Is there a nodule in the prostate? Is there a cancer lurking in that prostate? Can the computers help us with that too? Absolutely. Absolutely. 
Just to clarify, though, actually in like the prostate radiology world, actually most of the imaging is done with magnetic resonance imaging. Okay. So that just gives a richer sense of the tissue that's within the prostate compared to something like CT. But yes, to answer your question, so whenever a, a radiologist looks at this image, they have years and years of training that goes into what to look for. So not only are they looking at just the shape of the prostate, but they make a diagnosis on what they think is suspected cancer. And those manifest in different ways in this image. So they look for different patterns, different textures, and it all comes with years and years of training. So essentially what we do is we like to have that radiologist, they have already their pre-annotated results. So they mark up this image somehow with, their, with a tool. They'll say, oh, I think this, this has some level of prostate cancer risk. Or some assessment. And then we can take that data, both the original image and what their labeling is, put it into an algorithm, and then hopefully that algorithm can learn to do a similar thing. Now, the goal is, though, can you actually achieve some kind of like performance that applies to the, all the data sets that you haven't seen? That's a real challenge in artificial intelligence. Can you get something that you've never seen before? And that's, that's one of the big questions that we have. So we're really trying to distill all the knowledge within this model. Just think of it as a black box. Can we capture what these radiologists have taught within this black box? And so essentially the question is, can one day the computer take over the job of the radiologist? I don't think so. That seems to be everyone's fear. I look at it more as that it can be a helpful assistant, an aid, like a clinical diagnostic tool that they can leverage to improve their own um, level of care. And I also see a very big point of this could be at Yale, we're very fortunate to have lots of experts who are doing this kind of imaging. One of the main challenges is what if you have someone who is not an expert and trained in this? Will they perform as well as the expert? Most likely no. But if you're able to give them this tool, can we bring that more novice reader up to the level of the expert? And can you disseminate this technology down into lower centers of care that it could be really impactful to patient health across the population, not just those that are coming to Yale? Right. So, for example, if you're in the community and you don't have one of these experienced radiologists, maybe you have a general radiologist, uh, the computer might be able to show them a spot that maybe they should be more worried about. Correct. Yes. What you, you'd think of like an ideal algorithm, this machine learning, it could highlight an area of interest. And you never want to say that that area of interest is definitely cancer. But what you want to do is point it out to the radiologist, make them aware. Maybe it was something that they would have missed that they would have not seen otherwise. But if they take a second look because of this algorithm, then that means we've done our job, especially if it leads to that was actually something that they should have been looking at and they just happen to overlook it. Right. And, and I think that's possible because humans are human and, you know, suffer from fatigue or Absolutely. whatever else. Absolutely. So the, usually the next step after diagnosis, once you have the image and you see something that looks a little funny, the next step is a biopsy. So will artificial intelligence and machine learning help us in that? So that's actually one area of research that I've been involved in. It's how to basically improve the targeting of that biopsy. So when a patient goes for a biopsy, they do so under ultrasound guidance. So a urologist has the ability to see what they're targeting, but they aren't able to discern what is a cancerous lesion or not of the prostate. However, that lesion is able to be discerned on the magnetic resonance imaging. The problem then becomes, how do you map 
your target and your MR image to your ultrasound. And that's where we came in to, to develop a model that could actually predict the way that the prostate would change during the two procedures. So it provided a way to hopefully more accurately target these. So by imagine it like having a, a bullseye. We want to show where exactly that urologist should aim their biopsy needle. So how do you do that exactly? Because, you know, we've had urologists on the show before, and they've talked about how they can see things on the MRI. And when they go to ultrasound, they really can't. And so sometimes these biopsies are almost, I don't want to say random, but almost, um, because you can't necessarily correlate it, especially if there's no palpable lesion that you can feel. And so how does the computer take an image on one modality that has is a completely different Oh, they look nothing alike either. And, and translate it into another modality. I mean, an MR is a cross-sectional image. Um a, an ultrasound is completely different. How how do you do that? We actually are able to leverage uh human intelligence in this case. So both the radiologist and the urologist provide an initial guess about where the prostate gland is itself. So first on the radiology side, a radiologist will actually contour, we call it segmentation, of the prostate gland. And that takes a few minutes to actually do. Again, this gets back to something that I was talking about earlier. Can you have a computer program do that automatically? So there's one way that we can improve the efficiency of the workflow. But right now, we manually have to do it because that's what we rely upon. And the urologist will actually do the same thing in the ultrasound. While they're doing the procedure, before it starts for the biopsy, they will contour this ultrasound, and they will find out where the prostate gland is. So now we have two shapes of what the prostate looks like, one in the MR imaging and one in the ultrasound. So now, now that we have these surfaces, these shapes, we're able to co-register. We call this image fusion. We actually bring the two into alignment. And that... By using these models instead, these surfaces instead of the imaging itself, that's how we kind of get away with the very different appearances of these images and the two different imaging modalities. But so, so it's still a little bit fuzzy as to how you can take these two images. Okay, I get the fact that you contour it out and you say, here is the prostate in this ball. And here is the prostate in this other ball on the ultrasound. And But to put them together... Because then ultimately you have to feed that information to the urologist, not only to say, you know that ball that you were thinking was the prostate on the ultrasound? Well, here's where it looks, how it looks on the MR. And on the MR, oh, by the way, the lesion that we're going after is here, which you can't really see on the ultrasound, but you're going to have to trust us that it's kind of here in this fused image that you can't really see. Correct. What we do is basically that fusion, basically, like I said before, it provides a target. So that target is displayed in real time on the ultrasound image. So when the urologist is performing the procedure, the urologist looks at the ultrasound image. And the beauty of ultrasound is, is that it is in real time. So you, what you see is what you are looking at currently in real time. And so the software is actually able to transform, to map, fuse that lesion onto that image in real time. So then the urologist is able to target it. That's where they aim the biopsy needle. And so the particular device that's here at Yale actually has a mechanical arm that stabilizes the biopsy procedure. And so it's a very, it's a known trajectory on where that biopsy needle is going to go. And so they're able to 
not only target the lesion, but also record where that biopsy sample was performed. And so that actually gets into the downstream effects of when that goes to pathology. Did you actually hit that lesion? Which was going to be my next question, because you can tell me that the target is at point X on the ultrasound. But if I can't see point X on the ultrasound, I'm kind of taking your word for it. You are trust putting your trust entirely in the fusion algorithm itself. Right. Which is particularly interesting because the segmentation or the outlining of that gland on the ultrasound is extremely challenging. Urologists have a very difficult time. And it's not, not against them. Anybody has it. I mean, and they have years of training. And you ask the same urologist to do the same person again, you'll get a different answer. And that's actually where the innovation and the uh, research that we've been doing here at Yale comes in. It's actually, can we handle these kind of mistakes, these errors that are going to happen no matter what that happens to everybody? Can we make a more robust fusion that is less sensitive to these kinds of problems? And so... So you have the variability in the urologist outlining the prostate. And then you have the fact that they can't see the lesion. And you give them a target. And you tell them, aim here. And the biopsy is taken there. Have you looked at how often you're right? We're actually quantifying that right now. Like going but back and looking at where pathology, did the, yes. Not only pathology, but what if on the MR you were wrong, right? So, ex- so yes. to go back and look at the MR and say, I did the biopsy here. Was it actually the place where we meant to target? Because we can see it on the MR. Exactly. Uh, we actually do that in tumor board. When we get everybody together in a room, we get the radiologists, we get the pathologists and the urologists all together. And what we do is we look at what cases we possibly missed and why. And that's a very useful thing. So we're actually going backwards from our results. Well, there's a lot more to talk about, about AI and prostate cancer, right after we take a short break for a medical minute. Support for Connecticut Public Radio comes from AstraZeneca, working side-by-side with leading scientists to better understand how complex data can be converted into innovative treatments. More information at AstraZeneca-US.com. This is a medical minute about pancreatic cancer, which represents about 3% of all cancers in the U.S. and about 7% of cancer deaths. Clinical trials are currently being offered at federally designated comprehensive cancer centers for the treatment of advanced stage and metastatic pancreatic cancer using chemotherapy and other novel therapies. Fulfirinox, a combination of five different chemotherapies, is the latest advance in the treatment of metastatic pancreatic cancer. And research continues at centers around the world looking into targeted therapies and a recently discovered marker, HENT1. This has been a Medical Minute brought to you as a public service by Yale Cancer Center. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to Connecticut Public Radio. Now, John, you know, right before the break, we were we were kind of saying that the urologists really put their trust in this targeting device because they can't see the lesion. The lesion shows up on the MR, which but they're doing the, the biopsy under ultrasound, which can't see the lesion. And so they're trusting your algorithm to tell them exactly where to biopsy. And you're also knowing that urologists are human and radiologists are human and the outlines that they provide are not necessarily always completely accurate. And so you're dealing with a little bit of variability, but at the end of the day, the urologist puts that needle into the prostate, into the part of the prostate that you told them to, 
and then you go back and you look at the MRI to see whether or not they biopsied the right spot. Correct. You can do that. It's it's very interesting. These cases that do have discordant results, which was expected, um, we do go back and look at them and see what was missed in either case. But it's fascinating. The, the, actually, if you look at the size of the gland compared to the size of these biopsy, it's, it's something like 0.05% of the gland. That is all you are sampling. And many studies have actually shown that this targeting of biopsies is really the way to go because you get a much higher rate of um, detection of cancer that way. Again, there's still a lot of variability in that. And what's very interesting about the research that we've done here is we proposed this novel fusion algorithm to map these, hopefully map these lesions better. And we were able to do is here at Yale is we were able to see them in real time, the two answers given from one, the device that currently how they do it, and then our method. And we were able to see the variability in the targets itself. And that variability there, just the urologist looking at it, gave him some indication of how bad or incorrect the biopsy might be. So while we weren't able to change a biopsy trajectory for the study, it gave an idea down the line, like, oh, maybe this is why we missed this thing, because it was just a, a problem with sampling the wrong location, because the wrong location, the wrong target was given. Right. And so how often, I'm sure that there are people who are listening to this going, oh, my gosh, I can't imagine that the wrong part of my prostate might be biopsied. How often is it inaccurate? And how often is it inaccurate with the fusion technology versus how often is it inaccurate when, you know, the urologist kind of goes in blind uh, to do a biopsy under ultrasound of a thing that they can't see? Well, I can't give you specific numbers on that. Um, the studies do show that if you have a target presented by one of these devices, you are much more likely to find that cancer that you are looking for. But again, that's something that's only available to a small number of institutions, some institutions that are large are able to have these devices. So traditionally, a biopsies were taken in a just a regular systematic fashion. A urologist would only take 12 of them. And really, that's likened to less of a game of chance then. You're, again, like I said before, you're taking less than 0.05% of that prostate. Would you trust that it's very difficult to, to actually get it. Now, you do end up with cases where you do find cancer where it wasn't suspected, certainly. And maybe that was just pure luck. But would you want to trust that? I don't know. It, you have much better chance of finding that cancer if you have these targets. Even if these targets may not be 100% correct, it is much more likely that you're going to find it and be successful and have a better diagnosis. And so if on the MR you see something that's suspicious and the radiologist says that's what we want to go after and you do the fusion algorithm and you, you target that thing and it comes back and the pathologist says, nah, it's benign. You, you talked then just before the break about talking about these cases in tumor board. Tell us about what, what happens there and how you can get yourself either reassured that, yeah, that really is benign or, gee, we might have missed it even with our algorithm. That's what's great about the tumor board is it puts everybody that needs to make that decision in the room together. They're able to discuss it. So each specialist discusses the, what they see 
in either the imaging or the pathology, and then the urologist also with what they saw during the procedure of the biopsy. And it all kind of comes together to make like one cohesive decision. And a lot of time, they come to a con- uh, some kind of consensus, and the best plan is made for that patient. Oftentimes, if it is something that was not suspected, they will, the patient will be placed on something that's called like active surveillance. So they'll be monitored more frequently for their care. And the goal is there is that maybe if you missed it that first time by monitoring them on actively, you'll be able to catch it a second time or if there's any progression. So if you missed it just by chance the first time, maybe they'll be more likely to see it the next time. You know, with all of the talk of AI and there's, you know, talk of AI in everything these days. I wonder about the downside of AI. I mean, certainly cost is likely an issue. And with healthcare costs rising, I can't imagine that this is any cheaper or just as expensive as doing a regular biopsy. Talk about the cost of the technology and the other downsides to AI. So like I think we discussed before that AI algorithms or any kind of tools could be a real efficiency for clinicians. It could help them make decisions in, a, in an easier way, a cheaper way. Um, the problem with training these algorithms is they're only as good as the data that you put in. Uh, there's the adage, garbage in, you get garbage out. So if you don't train these things with well-annotated data or something that's really noisy, you're not going to get anything useful. That's a problem. Another inherent problem is this, is they are potentially biased to whatever you trained on. Um, so just for example, in some of my own research, I had 300 data sets from Yale, 300 from Stanford. We trained an algorithm on one and ran it on the other. It didn't work. It was shocking. We had perfect performance on the other site. But what's something to realize is that these algorithms do not generalize well. They don't really um, – you, you can't make a general inference as well as a human radiologist easily can. A radiologist from Yale or Stanford could easily tell what the prostate is, but this algorithm couldn't just because it was from a different location. So wait a minute. So so you could – I mean, if I was living in California and I went to Stanford and, you know, you did this fusion algorithm and did a biopsy, you'd be accurate. If I then went to Yale, you use the same algorithm, you'd be inaccurate. Potentially, Yes then that means that you would have to retrain this algorithm for every new center that you plan on using it in. Correct. Uh, that is active area of research, actually. People are looking at ways that they can either retrain things faster or that they can just make these algorithms better from the start. Whether it's something you do to the data from the beginning of the pipeline and put it in, that can have a much better effect on your, your actual training of these things. But the problem you run into is what happens if somebody updates their software? You could just make your algorithm obsolete at that very moment. You'd have to retrain from scratch. So the most valuable thing, again, is what's the data that you're putting in here and how much of it? And that's really the key. And so are you able to use that data in a good way that can be applied throughout the entire population across all sites and hospitals in the U.S., in the world? Because one would think that, you know, if you are looking at an MRI image, at Stanford, you would be able to see what you see. You could take the same MRI image and show it to a radiologist at Yale, and they would see the same thing. It's like a photograph. Yeah. I think a lot of this has to do with the misnomer of the name of artificial intelligence. 
those of us who really work with the technology, we kind of cringe at that name because we say we know that there's no actual intelligence within the model itself. All the intelligence comes in from the data, the people who created the data, the radiologists, the pathologists, urologists who created the data. That's where the intelligence is. So really, it's just machine learning. This machine is learning to do something that a radiologist does, but it is not good at tasks that humans are really good at, which is making generalizable performance, making inferences very easily that apply to things that it has never seen. That's what the problem in our domain is called overtraining to the data. It's only good at things that it has seen, and it can't recognize something that it has never seen before, which is a particular challenge when there's any kind of pathology. Right. So if you were... I mean, I'm just struggling with this because as I think about the utility of the technology, you know, before the break, we said one of the utilities is really to help, you know, radiologists who may not be specific to prostate cancer, who, you know, maybe the technology can help them to get better. Um, But in that case, you know, you would be taking this technology out to a site that presumably didn't train it because it was trained by the experts at another site. But one would hope that it would be accurate at that second site. And if, you know, you train it at Stanford and test it at Yale or vice versa and you didn't get any accuracy, I wonder what would happen if you trained it at Yale and then you took it out to, you know, tuck 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 And uh, for anybody who's wondering, that's a small town in uh, Canada. Um, and and it might not work. That's absolutely true. But fear not. That is something that uh, the machine intelligence and machine learning people are trying to work on. I mean, that is probably the big problem right now in the community. This is especially true in the medical field. A lot of research that has gone on in this machine learning, artificial intelligence has come out of like stuff that Google and Apple and all these other big companies are doing with photographs, images. Those are all good. They generalize fairly well. But what happens when a human's life is on the line when you're trying to work with these algorithms? There's a certain bar that we need to clear that is much higher than that these companies need to so far. So we have to be very careful with what we're doing. And it is, again, it's a very active field of research that I think is probably the most critical thing. Um, And it's also not to say that all these other companies that have their algorithms to recognize your cats and your dogs, they face the exact same problem with their cameras. What if they change their lens on their camera? Most likely that algorithm is going to have to be retrained to recognize your cat or dog. Interesting. Hmm. What about the cost? I see that you sidestepped that issue that I raised a while ago. It's actually, I think the software and the hardware is relatively cheap. The, the innovations that came out of the hardware are actually what really enabled this revolution that we're having now in this machine intelligence. It's, it basically came out of uh, video gaming. The graphics processing units of your computers are now able to crunch millions of calculations within a second. And that's what's really enabled this. What's fascinating is a lot of people have called this the democratization of machine learning or machine uh, intelligence because Google and Facebook have made these algorithms and these toolkits available that high school students can take. They can build these deep learning models, these artificial neural networks, and get solutions to problems that we previously had to engineer these complex models with. And now you can just take these tools out of the box and you can run it. And they can get an answer that's 
surprisingly good. Um, but what's really lacking is, is the understanding of what that model can do. And also, what are some other things that we can do as researchers or as clinicians? What can we add that we already know to improve these models and the training of these things? And so that's, that's the challenge, is bringing in things that can help them learn in a better way. And so where are we on that front? Well, we are, we're in the midst of it. It's, so there's a big investment in this. A lot of companies are investing in this. And it's just, it's burgeoning right now. We're this very rapid uptake in research. Everybody is doing it now. Everybody's jumping on the bandwagon. There's tons of money out there. And I think we're at the point where now we really need to evaluate how good these models are. The evaluation and the validation is going to be critical. There's a lot of hype right now in trying to apply this, especially to medicine. But I think we need to be very careful on how we apply this. And there's also the questions of, one, is there bias? Are there ethics issues involved in this? Where does the data come from? How important is that data? Again, there's, there's a lot of questions that need to be answered now. And it's a very exciting time in the field. Dr. John Onofre is Assistant Professor of Radiology and Biomedical Imaging and of Urology at the Yale School of Medicine. If you have questions, the address is canceranswers at yale.edu, and past editions of the program are available in audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. We hope you'll join us next week to learn more about the fight against cancer here on Connecticut Public Radio.